Hello listeners, welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History. I'm Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website containing a wide array of features all dedicated to comic books. This podcast was created as another avenue for sharing comic information with other fans. Hopefully you've already downloaded and listened to my first episode, but if you haven't or you need a quick recap, here's what I'll be covering. The intention of this show is to look at comics published by DC starting from the very beginning. While I'll be talking about the history of the company and the creators who worked there, the primary focus of this podcast is the stories themselves. Many of the earliest stories were printed only in comics that are extremely rare and therefore expensive. The good news is that I have every one of these stories in one form or another. So even if you can't read them yourself by pulling out that copy of New Fun Number 1 from your collection, I'm sure everybody's got that, you can still follow along. Many of the earliest DC Comics, including those that appeared in in its very first title, New Fun, which debuted in 1935, were told in a serial format. In this format, a single issue might contain 20 or more features, but only one page of each story appeared in one issue. This is similar to the way the daily strips or Sunday features that appeared in the funny section of a newspaper. However, these comics only came out once a month, and in the first year of publication for New Fun, several months were missed in in the publication schedule, so it didn't even come out monthly for the most part. In order to properly cover these serials, I'll be covering one or two of the serials per episode rather than focusing on all the serials in a, in a given issue. Last time out, I talked about Jack Woods, DC's first cover star. This week, I'll be covering Sandra of the Secret Service, DC's first female hero. Sandra of the Secret Service was a series that began in New Fun number 1 and ran for the first 35 issues of that title. Sandra's feature was nearly always the first strip inside the issue, Only in her last appearance in More Fun 35 did she abdicate the lead spot, which was taken by Siegel and Schuster's radio squad. New Fun number 1 and 2 were printed entirely in black and white, but all of Saunders' subsequent appearances were published in color. Saunders' first adventure, which runs through More Fun number 13, begins with Saunders making a trip to to a dressmaker's shop. When the car she's traveling in stops at a red light, A well-dressed man in a tux and top hat opens the door to her car and enters. He pulls out a gun and instructs Saunders' driver to head for a specific address. As the driver complies, the gun-wielding gentleman points out a car that is tailing them. The passenger in the trailing car begins shooting at Saunders' car. Between panels, Saunders' driver must have gotten away because they arrive at the address given by the carjacker and he exits the vehicle. Sandra returns home and is told by her butler that a gentleman caller has arrived. A man wearing a trench coat enters and begins to ask Sandra about the man she saved. Before Sandra can answer, a gunman enters and orders Sandra and the trench coat wearing man to stick him up. So concludes the first single page chapter of Sandra's serial. This installment gives little information about Sandra herself. Future episodes in the serial don't reveal much either about her character. I can only infer that that she is a woman of some means since she has a driver and a butler. However, her ties to the Secret Service are not yet explored. More on that in just a bit. 
Many of the strips in New Fun carried a byline of the artist. Saunders' feature does not. However, her appearance in New Fun No. 2 is credited to Charles Flanders. He almost certainly did this episode also, and the one from New Fun No. 3, which also omits the byline. Flanders was born in 1907 and was already making a, a living as a comic strip artist. He worked for King Features Syndicate beginning in 1932 and contributed to a variety of strips including such as Bringing Up Father. His work for National also included the first three chapters of Ivanhoe which appeared alongside Sandra's strip in New Fun number one to three. These are often incorrectly credited to Raymond Perry uh, who took over the Ivanhoe strip with issue four uh, but they were indeed done by Flanders. Later in 1935, Flanders would uh, create a short-lived Sunday feature uh, called Robin Hood, and in 1939 he began a long run on the Lone Ranger comic strip, which lasted until 1971. So he did this strip for decades. Flanders passed away in 1973, so it was shortly after he retired from the Lone Ranger strip. Saunders' adventures in continue in New Fun Comics number two. Sandra and her unnamed visitor are still held at gunpoint by a bearded man. He claims to be an agent from the country Gavonia and is upset that Sandra aided a man named Lothar in his escape. Before the foreign agent can kill his captives, Sandra knocks him off balance with a chair. Her visitor struggles with the man until Sandra can pick up the gun and knock out the bearded man. The visitor then explains that Gavonia is ruled by a mad scientist who invented a death ray. Lothar, the man from the car that was appointed to destroy the plans. While Sandra and the man, who, who is apparently a government agent, talk, the spy escapes. Thrilled about the possibility of excitement, Sandra plans to sail herself to Gavonia. Again, Sandra's connections to the Secret Service aren't explored in this episode, but since she does invite herself on a government mission, it can probably be assumed that she is an agent of some kind. Of note on the second installment is that Sandra's strip shares a page with the table of contents for the issue. This table of contents listing would continue until new fun number six. Beginning with, with more fun number seven, Sandra's strip took up the full page. Not until more fun number nine would her strip expand to multiple pages in a single issue. Also note that Sandra's strip in New Fun number one shared a page with another strip. I'll be discussing that strip, which actually has a significant impact on pres uh, present day DC decision. Uh, I'll be exploring that in my next episode. New Fun number three picks up Sandra's adventures, now in color, as she boards a, sh a ship bound for Gavonia. Two men meet her on the deck and advise her to turn back. One of the men will be eventually identified as Lothar, the man who carjacked her. The other man is presumably the gentleman caller who visited Sandra at her house. This man's name is given as Reynolds in New Fun number 6, but neither are called by name in this story. Also aboard the ship is the bearded Gavonian agent who escaped earlier. The bearded man tries to kill Sandra aboard the ship in her, while she's sleeping. Sandra, however, is waiting for him, uh, but the spy actually has an accomplice aboard who takes Sandra from behind. In New Fun number 4, the agents smuggle Sandra off the ship rolled up in a carpet. 
Saunders' friend Lothar and Reynolds find out that she's been taken, and they deduce how the, the spies got her off the ship in the carpet, and they begin a pursuit to save her. With the fourth installment of the serial, there are some changes. First, Charles Flanders has left the strip. He was replaced by Monroe Eisenberg for issues number four and five. Eisenberg was just 21 years old in 1935 when this story was published. Still, even at this young age, he had already opened his own Connecticut art studio in 1934, primarily doing freelance illustration. His work appeared in only two issues at National. In addition to the two Saunders strips, he also drew The Magic Crystal of History, which also appeared in New Fun number four and five. He moved on to be a pulp illustrator before enlisting in the Army Air Corps in 1941. This was actually prior to the U.S.'s entry into the war later that year. He survived World War II and then returned to work as an illustrator for magazines and children's books. He spent his later years as a portrait artist before dying in 1999. Saunders' story was also slightly altered. The plot of this story was initially uh, presented as a threat which involved a mad scientist and a death ray. Fortunately, that cliched angle was quickly abandoned. Uh, it was last mentioned in New Fun number three. The country of Gavonia, however, was still the, the source of the threat that Sondra and her associates uh, are opposing. In New Fun number five and number six, Lothar and his partner hail a taxi to follow the bearded Gavonia agent who has kidnapped Sandra. The taxi is forced to stop after an apparent breakdown. The two agents exit the cab, then suddenly the driver pulls a gun on them. A group of Gavonians then attack the, the agents. The car in which Sandra is held also stops. While the spies stop to watch the fight, Sandra is able to grab a gun from one of her captors. With issue number six, W.C. Brigham took over the art for the series. I spoke uh, last episode about Brigham, who also did the Jack Woods uh, adventures, the later part of those. So I won't go into detail here about, uh, about Brigham himself. Uh, just know that he was the regular artist on Saunders' series until More Fun number 20 in 1937. It's not clear whether the artists were also writing their, these serials themselves or just illustrating them. Given that Brigham is the third artist on Saunders' strip in the first six issues, could give support to a theory that uh, there was a single writer for these adventures and it was not the artists. Uh, perhaps it was even DC's founder, Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, uh, who would later be credited with writing several stories uh, from later issues of his own comics and was also a, an established pulp author at this time. Uh, considering that there's no records for writers from this series or many others from this time period, I'm willing to suppose that they were written either by the artists or by Nicholson. Back to the story, Sandra shoots the driver of the car in which she was held prisoner. When it crashes, uh, she is uninjured and goes to the aid of her associates Lothar and Reynolds, who are still engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the group of Gavonians. With Sandra's help, they are defeated, but just as the fight ends, another car pulls up carrying, carrying armed guards and a Gavonia authority figure who has the trio arrested. Now between installments in issues number seven and issue eight, there seems to be a piece of the story that's missing. I can only speculate on this since I haven't heard anything about 
this from other sources. However, it is known that at this around this time, Nationals founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson was also having difficulty paying his employees. Many of the artists and editors left and, uh, and they were not paid for their work. William Cook and John Mann, who briefly worked as editors at National, left the company shortly after this and took with them unpublished artwork. Many National features saw print under altered names in a book called The Comics Magazine, published by that duo of former editors. Several of the unpaid artists would also go to work for that enterprise. One national feature, Dr. Colt, had a chapter um, of his serial printed in the comics magazine under the name Dr. Mystic. That serial then continued back at National in More Fun number 17, and I'll be revisiting this part of national history in a later episode. Um, Given this information, I do think it's possible that an installment of the Sandra story was left out of this serial. However, more fun number 7 and 8 were published several months before the comics magazine, so that timeline may not be exactly right to make that work. Um, so the missing chapter of Sandra's uh, serial uh, may have been an unpublished story, uh, chapter that just never saw print, or I could just be speculating and the author changed the story without actually writing this or drawing this chapter. I do find it interesting to speculate about this uh, because More Fun number 8 opens with a caption explaining that Count Taurus has ordered Sandra to appear before the Gavonian people uh, as the missing princess Yonda. So without explanation there's an entire plot about a missing princess that's introduced in a caption at the beginning of episode 8. As I've already mentioned, sometimes in these earlier serial plot points do get dropped without explanation from time to time, but this particular plot point uh, introduction reads differently, leading me to believe that a chapter was actually left out. So Count Taurus, who is, a, is the Gavonian authority uh, that had Sandra and her friends arrested, threatens to kill Lothar and Reynolds unless Sandra agrees with, her, with his plan to have her impersonate Princess Yonda. Forced to obey uh, the Count's orders to save her friends, Sandra is put on display before all of Gavonia. The people rejoice with the return of the princess, uh, so her masquerade is actually a success. But at court, the young Count de Wex slips Sandra a note indicating that he knows she is an imposter. He threatens to expose her unless she agrees to meet him privately to explain her masquerade. So that night, Sandra sneaks out of the, of the black tower in which she's held and into the woods to meet Count Dewex. She is followed by a cloaked man, but when they reach the woods, her stalker is attacked by a man wielding a sword. When Sandra hears the sound of the fight, she turns around to find several robed men who grab her. The men lead her through a gloomy passage to a meeting chamber. Count Dewex is actually one of the robed men. Sandra explains to me to, to him the reason why she is impersonating Princess Yonda. Basically, her friends are held captive and she's been forced to do this by Count Taurus. Dewex agrees not to expose her until the real princess can be located. Suddenly, the meeting chamber is assaulted as Count Toru and his guardsmen uh, enter. The Count's name was actually spelled with an S at the end of his first appearance, but subsequent episodes have now changed that spelling 
uh, to omit the S at the end. So it went from Count Taurus to now Count Toru. I'll be count calling him Count Toru for the rest of this uh, 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 adventure. So Dwex leads Sonder and her associates out of the room to escape from Toru, uh, but their escape is thwarted when they encounter soldiers loyal to the Princess Yonda. Sandra fools the soldiers by showing them a locket of authority and convinced that she is the real princess, these soldiers obey the girl when she orders them to arrest Count Toru and his, and his men. With Count Toru finally out of the picture, Sandra orders her friends released from uh, the prison in which they're held. She then commands Count Dwex to find the real princess. Although she tells him that it is actually the American girl that she's rescuing, meaning herself, Princess Yonda, the real one, is hiding in an abandoned castle at Omond. She has been taken captive by her own people because they actually believe that Sandra, the impersonator, is the real princess. The situation is finally resolved when Sandra and, and Count Dwex arrive to rescue her. So this wraps up Sandra's first adventure. But, beginning with more fun number nine, the single page strips had given way to a two page strip. Most often these strips were presented side by side on opposite pages. So when you open the book to any page, the page on the left would be page one of an individual feature story, and the page on the right would have page two. And then when you turn the page, you'd be on the next feature. However, when you open the front cover of a book, you have the inside front cover on the left and an interior page on the right. So in more fun number 9 through number 12, there was on the right hand page when you open the front cover, there was an introductory message that was basically a welcome to the magazine. However, beginning with more fun number 13, the intro page was abandoned and the stories began right away. Since Sandro's stories were nearly always the first story in the book, her story was expanded to three pages beginning with more fun number 13 instead of two like every other feature in the book. So her story actually began on page one and then you turn the page and she occupied pages two and three which had the double page layout like I was talking about just like the other features in the book. So all of the remaining Saunders stories in more fun number three now had this three page layout. Based on how this story ends uh, I suspect it was actually planned as just a two-page ending, and the third page in More Fun Number 13 is just kind of tacked on. So on the third page, the next adventure begins. It's not entirely a new story, but it's a kind of a continuation of the last one, as serials sometimes go, and I'll be covering that adventure in a future episode. Hopefully we'll learn some more about Sandra during that time. So far her strip has a lot of action, but there's little in the way of characterization. Now, I'm not expecting modern storytelling. I mean, this is a pre-Golden Age book for all that. I mean, you know, 1935, 1936 here. So there's not going to be a lot of characterization. That's not what I'm expecting. I have read a ton of Golden Age stories, and very few of them provide much in the way of character development. But I'd at least like to know whether she's an official Secret Service agent or just simply an adventurer. She seems to have ditched her government friends Lothar and Reynolds after getting them released from jail. There's only a single panel that even shows these guys being released, and they don't even talk to Sandra afterwards. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. At least they jump ship on that early death ray 
plot line that I was so cliche when it was brought up. I was like, please, no, not the Death Ray with the Mad Scientist. Saunders Adventures have only been reprinted in the ultra-rare Big Book of Fun Comics, New Book of Comics, and Double Action Number 2. I talked about those in last episode where the Jack Wood stories were reprinted. So none of those are readily available. I recently learned of another reprint containing some of Saunders Adventures. Bingo Comics Number 1, published by Howard Publishing in 1945, apparently contains reprints of material from New Fun. Although I haven't been able to get a complete list of the book's contents, I do understand that Saunders strips from New Fun number 1 through 5 were reprinted. The strips were formatted differently because they were printed on a standard-sized comic page rather than oversized tabloid pages. Remember that every issue of New Fun was published at that larger size. Therefore, each of Saunders strips was made to fit on two standard-sized pages rather than on a single page in which they originally appeared. The adventures from number one and number two were originally printed in black and white. Those strips, however, are printed in color for the first time in Bingo Comics. I'm interested in tracking down a copy of this book if I can find it on the cheap. I'd like to check out what other material besides Saunders was reprinted there as well. I will try to post some, some samples in the show notes so you can check out the artwork. Again, most of the later episodes are by Brigham, so this is the same artist that did Jack Woods from the last episode. Most early issues published by National Allied contained comic strips from a variety of genres. Science fiction was a staple of newspaper comic strips from this time period. Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers were long-running strips at the time National was started. Buck Strip was the first science fiction strip ever. It debuted in 1929, shortly after his creation in Amazing Stories. Flash Gordon Strip began in 1934, a year before National was founded, and soon surpassed Buck Strip in popularity, largely due to the artwork of Alex Raymond. These two newspaper strips served as inspiration for two original features created for National, Don Drake on Planet Sorrow and Super Police. Both features were created by the same two men, Ken Fitch and Clemens Gretter. Born in 1903, Ken Fitch was the writer of these early science fiction strips. It was unusual for writers to be included on the strip's byline, Fitch proved to be the exception, as his name did appear on the Super Police feature. Fitch would leave National in 1937. He then began a brief stint as the editor for Harry Chesler's comics Funny Picture Stories and Star Ranger. He returned to DC shortly thereafter, where he would collaborate with artist Bernard Bailey on two much more enduring characters, Mr. America and Our Man of JSA fame. Although Fitch's last known contributions to DC were published in 1948, he continued to work in comics for other companies, including Dell, well into the 1960s. He died in 1965. Clemens Gretter was born Joseph Clemens Gretter in 1904. His career as an artist began at the Chicago Tribune. During the Depression, he sought work illustrating novels such as The Hardy Boys. In addition to the two features he drew in New Fun at National, he also drew the Ray and Gale feature 
that appeared in early issues of New Comics. In 1941, he began drawing the Ripley's Believe It or Not series. He continued drawing for comics until 1967, mostly contributing science fiction and factual features. Super Police chronicled the adventures of Rex Cosmos, a policeman from the year 2023. He was assisted by Professor Shanley. In the first episode, which began in New Fun Number 1, Shanley has invented a vehicle that is part airplane and part submarine. He calls it the High-Low. Rex takes the vehicle to the Galapagos Islands, where five U.S. ships have recently disappeared. The professor's assistant, Brut von Hennig, phones the professor's daughter, Joan, who is Rex's paramour, to tell her about the trip. Joan takes a cab to the airfield and reaches the plane just as it's departing. However, she neglected to pay the cabbie axle yoke, and as she's running to board the plane, the cabbie follows her. Joan and the cabbie board the plane, thanks in part to Rex's expert piloting skills. The Hilo then reaches the Galapagos Islands and discovers that the missing ships have been taken by Captain Kidlaw, a wizard pirate, as the story would call him, who has an undersea lair protected by gamma rays. Rex takes the Hilo underwater. He, the professor, and Brute then leave the ship, protected underwater by cosmic ray helmets. As they attempt to enter Kidlaw's base, Axel and Joan follow the group. Kidlaw and his forces notice them entering, and a battle begins. Rex leads his group into the lava hills for protection. They notice that the captured crews of the missing ships are loading stolen booty into Kidlaw's submarines. While they're watching this go on, Kidlaw and his forces capture them from behind. Rex and his friends are marched to Kidlaw's base under guard. Axel, however, slips and falls off a ledge along with one of the guards. Rex tries to rescue them, but he only succeeds in causing all three to fall further down the cliff. Kidlaw and the others assume that Rex and Axel are dead, having not survived the fall, but they did indeed survive. They locate an underground cave that leads through the hills towards Kidlaw's base. In the cave, they encounter a group of really odd people led by an ugly queen. The queen is enamored with Rex, who is forced to obey her because she threatens to kill Axel if, she, if he doesn't. She then demands that Rex marry her immediately, and an impromptu ceremony is held. During that ceremony, Rex realizes that the queen is really Renee Avalon, Kidlaw's favorite girl, wearing an ugly mask. He stops the wedding, and the queen then reveals that since Joan was captured, she has become Kidlaw's new favorite. Rex threatens to expose Renee's falsehood to her subjects, who are following her without knowledge that she's really uh, working for Kidlaw. Renee doses him with dizzy gas, putting Rex back under her spell. She puts back on her mask and takes Rex back to the wedding ceremony. This time he goes willingly. So the adventure was obviously meant to continue from this point, but more fun number 14 was the strip's last appearance. It was never finished. I found the strip to be quite fun, actually. It contains a number of crazy science fiction elements, like cosmic ray guns and gamma ray shields. You know, I wonder if you got shot by a cosmic ray gun, would you turn into a member of the Fantastic Four? Gretter's artwork isn't exceptional, but it's serviceable. For the standards of the time, it's actually pretty good. Although, as the series progressed, it did drift into a more 
cartoony style, one that I don't actually care for too much, but it started out pretty good. If you enjoy B-movie science fiction, you probably enjoy this Super Police feature. Too bad the story was never completed, though. Fitch and Gretter also created Don Drake on Planet Sorrow, which also began in New Fun number 1 and ran until More Fun number 17. The first episode begins with Don Drake and his girlfriend Betty inside a spherical-shaped vehicle that looks like a bathosphere used for underwater observation. If you're familiar with the time machine used by Rip Hunter, it looks pretty much like that. The sphere is attached to a balloon which breaks away from the vehicle. However, instead of falling back to planet Earth, the sphere rises into outer space and eventually reaches the alien world named Sorrow. When they land, Don and Betty are attacked by a race of midgets who are roughly three feet tall. The explorers are caught in a net, and then the midgets see some approaching monsters called bandars. These bandars look like giant lobsters with the tongue of a lizard. In the second installment, Don convinces these midgets to take refuge inside the sphere that brought them to the planet. Once inside, Don is released from the net. He then uses an atomic energy gun to fight off the bandars. This gun looks like a satellite dish with a gun going through the middle of it. Though Don saves them from the bandars, the sphere, with everyone inside, rolls off a cliff and into a body of water below. Like all the features in New Fun Number 1 and 2, these first two episodes of Don Drake were printed in black and white. The third installment, however, appears on the cover of New Fun Number 3. Now I suspect this cover slot may have been awarded because a survey included with New Fun Number 1 asked the readers which strip they liked best, and Don Drake was actually the winner from New Fun Number 1. On the cover of New Fun Number 3, we see that the sphere has been pulled from the water by a race of giant ants. The midgets inside tell Don that the ants are not really a threat, but the beast with many arms is. This Lovecraftian beast looks like a Mr. Potato Head with octopus arms. I think it looks like a little like the alien that was created in Watchmen as well, although much more cartoony. In any case, Don uses his atomic energy gun to slay the beast just before another attack. This time, the threat comes from the sky in the form of Valkyries. Okay, they're not really Valkyries, but they might as well be. They're warrior women riding giant wasps with dragon wings. The battle is still going when there's another Mr. Potato Head that appears to attack. Don saves the Valkyries from the Mr. Potato Head and earns their friendship. The midgets then lead Don to their city of Vetruria, just in time to battle another monster. This time it's the Gorodon, a man-eating giant. Once again, Don uses his trusty atomic energy gun to win the day. A welcoming ceremony is then held to honor these visitors from Earth, but the ceremony is quickly interrupted. Guess what? It's probably another monster. It seems the city of Vetruria is regularly menaced by a sea beast that has now returned to the city. The people sacrifice maidens to this beast in order to keep it appeased. Clearly this is the Kraken lifted straight from mythology, but uh, it's just a sea beast in this story. Don doesn't want this girl to die, so he allows himself to be suspended above the water by a rope 
and prepare to do battle with the Kraken, I mean the Sea Beast. The captain of the Midget Guards, named Crenon, is jealous of the giant stranger and begins to cut the rope in order to drop him into the belly of the Sea Beast. Betty tries to stop him, but she's attacked by Crenon's followers and some high priests. Crenon sees a quicker way to kill Don than cutting the rope and uses a Zaturian cannon on him. Don sees the danger above and positions himself so that the monster's body actually protects him from the cannon. The beast is killed in a blast and Don begins climbing back up the rope while Crenon tries to cut it. And here come the Valkyries again, I mean the uh, warrior women. They come and they're riding their wasp creatures to come to Don's aid. They also help Betty fight the priests. So that brings us to the end of more fun number nine. At this point there were some changes made in the series. First, beginning with number nine, the strip was expanded from one to two pages per issue. This was uh, consistent with the other features in the book as well, which all expanded to multiple pages. In issue number ten, Craig Flessel contributed as a fill-in artist on the series. Issue 9 didn't contain Greter's byline either. It may not have been done by him, but I still believe it is his artwork. It looks similar enough to the previous chapters, but I, I still think it's Greter. Greter did return officially with number 11 to finish off the run. I believe Flessel to be one of the most significant artists working at DC in the 1930s, not named Joe Schuster, of course. And I'll definitely be covering more of his work and giving you some of his background in one of my future episodes. However, the real significant change that begins with Morphon number 9 was that the rest of the series eliminated all the dialogue. Everything in the story from here out is told solely in captions. Now, in current day comics, captions are almost never used. Older comics relied on them heavily, and they abused them pretty badly. Personally, I think both approaches are kind of too extreme. I do prefer a more balanced approach to the storytelling. Here in this Don Drake story, for example, the captions simply retell the actions depicted in the artwork. They do add some detail about who the characters are, but they read almost as a synopsis of the story. Instead of helping to tell the story, they tell us about the story. And I think modern comics, the writers have gone too far in the opposite direction. When they eliminate the captions altogether, the characters are never identified, and I find it hard when I pick up a random issue to have really any idea of who these characters are or what they're doing in this particular story and they don't provide information to the reader and so it's really hard picking up an individual issue these days to even figure out what's going on sometimes. Now obviously if you've been reading the title for a while maybe you're familiar with these characters or the storyline and so you know what's going on but it's really really hard to jump into a story these days because they don't provide a caption to give you a, an idea of what's going on and, and who's, in, who's involved in the story. So I think the comics from the Silver and Bronze Ages had a better mix, at least for me, between you know too many captions and not enough captions. I just think it's a different storytelling approach, and I prefer that the, what they used in the Silver Age. In in any case, with Don Drake, I think these early comics were simply pioneering storytelling techniques. 
uh, none of this stuff had really been developed or had a chance to mature in any case. So I'm willing to give it a, give it a pass. I'm just pointing out here that the storytelling in in this story uh, does hinder my ability to enjoy the story to its fullest. To illustrate this point kind of a little bit, I'm going to, instead of continuing with my synopsis of the story for this podcast, I'll actually just read the captions from number 10 and 11 to give you an idea of what they're using here to tell the story. Don Drake, his rope cut by the treachery of Crenon, captain of the Saturian Guard, is falling to his death. The riders of Winged Death, a.k.a. the Valkyries, to the rescue. Don is borne triumphantly back to safety. Don arrives at an opportune moment to see the Queen Zira of Zatruria. Queen Zira sits in judgment. The Queen gives judgment. Crenon is ordered into arrest. Crenon plots with soldiers and priests. Don and Betty fall into the trap laid for them. Soldiers and priests of Zatruria lead the rabble in revolt. With revolt raging in Zatruria, what will happen to Don and Betty, imprisoned in a tower and helpless? To be continued. Don and Betty are captives in the Zaturian prison cell. The revolt has been successful. The queen is taken prisoner. Don and Betty are taken from their cell. Trial is held in the town square. A sentence of death. Fine news. Cream confers with the priests. More fear-crazed Zaturians confirm the report of a new monster. Cream offers Don Drake freedom and the return of his ray gun if he will vanquish the unknown monster. So, as you can see, there's a lot of just retelling what's being depicted in the panels and the artwork. Not really much being added to the story by this form of storytelling. So Don has promised his freedom if he can slay yet another monster that threatens the city. With all these monsters running around, I wonder what these midget people did and how they were able to survive before Don's arrival. Anyway, he vanquishes the beast, which looks like a cross between a lizard and a rhinoceros, using a flagon of liquid gold provided by Queen Zira. Meanwhile, the Queen and Betty are trying to escape from Crenon via an underground passage. While Dawn does successfully slay the beast, its death releases a poison death cloud that hangs in the air above the city. Dawn locates Betty and the Queen, and the trio make their escape and try to reach the Queen's cousin, La Swan, who rules a rival territory. After a series of mishaps, they reach La Swan's kingdom, known as Sarovia. However, Crenon has gotten there first, and has informed Laswan that Queen Zira intends to conquer his kingdom. Laswan orders Don and his friends imprisoned. Crenon then conspires with a group of Sarovian traitors to take over the kingdom. Don and Betty fight Crenon and his traitors uh, when suddenly an earthquake strikes. Crenon and his men board a ship to get to safety. Laswan and Zira are also taken aboard. However, Don and Betty remain trapped behind in Sarovia. So that ends the series in Morphine number 17. Obviously, like Super Police, the adventure was intended to continue, but it was cancelled and never finished. This may be because Gretter and Fitch departed, or because the feature wasn't popular enough to warrant continuation. 
I suspect that it was the departure of the creators that led to the abandonment of this series. And I've got to say that Don Drake's adventures were not really interesting to me as a reader. I've already mentioned the issues I had with the storytelling that was going on, especially in the later portions of the strip. But the real problem here in this series was the pacing. Everything seemed so rushed, and it was really hard for me to get invested in the story. You know, modern comics are extremely decompressed, where they take a single idea and stretch it out to six issues. So that same six-issue arc would have been probably a 12 or 15-page story in the Silver Age. Well, in this Don Drake story, that six-issue arc would have been a single panel in, in this story. So the story here is way, way too compressed, and at times it's really disjointed, and I didn't really enjoy it. So of the two science fiction strips that started in New Fun Number 1, I think Super Police comes up far more, more appealing than this Don Drake one did. Super Police I actually enjoyed, and I would have liked to see it continue uh, past its original run. And what's interesting is, is that both these strips were done by the same creative team. So it wasn't necessarily the creators or the artwork that I didn't like, it was just the, uh, the storytelling. In Super Police it was actually pretty good, Don Drake not so much. Since I'm recording this episode before the first episode of my podcast has been released, I haven't yet received any feedback about the, the show. In future episodes, I, I will be sharing select correspondence uh, during this part of the podcast. Until then, however, I think it's a good chance to discuss some early events in, DC, in the history of DC the company. As I mentioned before, DC was founded by Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, a former major in the U.S. Army who served in the cavalry and traveled all over the world. Wheeler Nicholson resigned his commission in 1923 after he was court-martialed which he earned uh, for criticizing some Army senior officers. Wheeler Nicholson had already written some non-fiction military work, including a novel before leaving the service. Uh, after the Army, he took up writing as a full-time career. He worked on pulps and wrote adventure novels. The comic landscape at that time was non-existent. In 1933, Funnies on Parade featured a collection of Sunday strips, uh, from the newspapers that was given away as a premium and shortly thereafter Famous Funnies A Car Carnival of Comics was also produced as a premium item. Some of these were then later sold at New York news newsstands for a dime. Basically they took remaindered copies and slapped a sticker on them and sent them out to the newsstand. And the publisher Eastern Color then began a series of regularly produced comics for a dime. Basically, they saw uh, another way to market these things. So Wheeler Nicholson was uh, already a businessman at this time, having founded Wheeler Nicholson Incorporated, which helped to get his writing work into syndication. In late 1934, he, he wanted to produce his own comics to, to you know, share in the success that uh, Famous Funnies was having. However, the newspaper syndicates held all the rights to most of the existing comics material, so the major then decided to create a comic featuring all original content, which was a first, a new idea in the field. Thus, New Fun was born into the comics landscape in 1935, published by Wheeler Nicholson under the name National Allied. 
as I mentioned earlier, I think the, uh, the Major wrote many of the early strips in New Fun. Uh, he doesn't receive any writing credits. Only artists were credited within the issues. So it's not really possible for me to discern which writer wrote which story. However, I did uncover some information that Wheeler Nicholson was involved in the hunt for Pancho Villa during his time with the Army sometime around 1916. And since the Jack Wood story I covered last issue featured Villa as a villain, I do suspect that the Major was involved in writing it. Six issues of New Fun were published in 1935. At the end of the year, National planned to release a second title simply called New Comics as a companion to New Fun. When New Comics was released, New Fun changed its title to More Fun, presumably to avoid confusion between the name of the two titles. Both titles formed the early foundation for National, which had financial difficulties in its early years. Within a few years, Wheeler Nicholson would have to give up control of his company as his financial backers forced him out. Both More Fun and New Comics which, became, which was retitled New Adventure Comics and then just Adventure Comics would continue for a long time thereafter. But its arrival, it was the arrival of a certain Man of Steel in 1938 which catapulted the company to a greater level of success and basically built an industry out of, out of comics. I intend to spend a great deal of time covering the comics before the invention of the superhero um, in, in this podcast, many of the things modern audiences take for granted with current comics were still in their formative stages during the 1930s. Comic formats, writing styles, artistic techniques were all still being developed. You can tell many of the ideas were simply being tried out for the first time to find out what worked and what didn't. And many of the characters that appeared in these stories are long forgotten by the comics world. But there's still some good stuff here. Okay, that's it for this episode. Don't forget to visit my website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, at www.mikesamazingworld.com. Please send any feedback for this show to mike at dcindexes.com. And I hope you join me next time as I continue to explore Mike's Amazing World of DC History.